Well, we have been studying the book of Genesis. And uh, let me kind of catch us up where we are. Remember God, after he floods the world because of sin, there's Noah and he rescues uh, one family and they repopulate the earth. But the earth becomes full of sin again. But rather than just wiping out the earth, God says, I am going to put a rescue plan uh, in, into play. And he picks one man named Abraham out of Iraq. And he makes a covenant with him and promises that through Abraham, somehow God's going to save the world through Abraham. And he promises him uh, a land and that he would be uh, the father of a people, a multitude, a nation. And through his lineage would come a particular seed, a particular savior. And Abraham has a son named Isaac, and then Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob is the chosen one through whom this seed would be born. Jacob is not a great guy. He's a conniver. He's a liar. He's a manipulator. And uh, we've been studying the story of Jacob. Now, Jacob tricked his brother Esau out of the blessing, the father would pass on the blessing to the son. He tricked him out of his blessing and out of his inheritance or his firstborn inheritance. And uh, he had to flee for his life because his brother Esau was going to kill him. So he fled, and here's a, here's a little map of the, this is the promised land, but he, he fled back up to, uh, to Haran where he met his wife, Rachel, and her sister, Leah, and their two, two slave girls were thrown in. He had four wives. And he has lots of sons. He ends up having 12 sons, but he, as he's coming back to the promised land, he, they've only had 11 of them so far. There's going to be another one born. And one girl. Anybody know the name of the girl? Dinah. Very good. Yes, Dinah. Okay. So, um, Jacob doesn't get along with his father-in-law, Laban, because Laban is just as corrupt as Jacob. So they bicker back and forth. Finally, Jacob says, I'm leaving. And he sneaks away. And as he comes back from up north and he's coming back, Laban, riding on his camel, I'm assuming he had a camel, uh, confronts Jacob and they have a, a throwdown of words, so to speak. But God protects Jacob. Because God appeared to Laban and says, don't mess with him. So they set up a pillar. And uh, the pillar marks the territory where Laban says, I won't go after you. You don't come after me. And they part ways. So uh, Jacob gets spared the Laban assault. Then we read where Jacob goes to sleep. He's all by himself. He sends everybody ahead. But a little, little place called Penuel, where... God himself wrestles with Jacob all night long, dislocates his hip. And I believe that's where, where Jacob truly becomes a believer and fully trusts God at that point. And you can hear the sermon on that. Then after that event, uh, Jacob's brother Esau is coming to meet Jacob. With 400 men, and Jacob thinks, he's going to kill me. 
But actually, God changes the heart of Esau, and he embraces him, and he doesn't kill him. So finally, we get to this point where Jacob is ready to enter into the promised land on this side of the Jordan River. This is the promised land. But we find out that he stays in this little town of Succoth for several years. And then in chapter 34, he does cross over into the promised land. He should be going down to Bethel, but he stays in Shechem. Now, I'm not going to even read the chapter, but I'm going to summarize the chapter for you. Here's what happens in Shechem. Dinah gets raped by a man named Shechem. Shechem from Shechem rapes Dinah. Then he falls in love with her, and then he goes uh, to her brothers and father and says, I want to marry her. The brothers say, well, you know, you can't marry because you guys are uncircumcised. Your whole, your whole nation of you are uncircumcised. So the only way we will marry, intermarry with you is if all the men get circumcised. So they go, all right, we'll do that. And all the males in Shechem get circumcised. Then Dinah has four brothers, two of them. Uh, from, she, she has a, a total of 11 brothers, but from her mother, there are four brothers. Two of them, Simeon and Levi, take their swords, and it says, while the men of Shechem were still sore, they went in with their swords and killed all the men. Murder, genocide by circumcision, really, is what is going on in Shechem. Okay. Then the other brothers go in, they take the remaining women and children and plunder the city. And now they've added to their population. And Jacob is upset. He says, when the rest of the Canaanites hear what you've done, they're going to attack us. So all these years he's been waiting to come back to Canaan and they're they're murderers. They've committed genocide, and Jacob is again terrified that he's going to die, and his people will be wiped out. Now, you go, wow, why would this be included in the Bible? Well, to show that Israel's patriarchs are sinners, not just sinners, murderers. And the only reason God chose them is by grace. They are sinners chosen by grace. Two of them are murderers. The others plunder the city. Remember when they were fleeing from Laban, Rachel had stolen her father Laban's idols. So she had idols. There's idolatry. There's murder. There's lying. There's cheating. There's plenty of sin throughout the camp. But does God abandon them? No. Here we go into chapter 35. God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel. Okay, so let's go back to the map. So so they're here in, in Shechem, and they're supposed to... And it says, go up to Bethel. That's because they're going up in elevation. They're going down on the map, but they're going up in elevation to Bethel. 
Okay, Arise and go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So you remember uh, when he was fleeing, he slept on a rock in Bethel, had a dream of a stairway to heaven, and angels ascending and descending, and the Lord comes down. God says, go back there, and I want you to make an altar and worship me there. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you. Okay, whoops. Put away the foreign gods. That's that's what we're going to focus on this morning. Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. In essence, change your hearts. Throw away your idols and symbolize it by putting on new clothes. Okay? It's a call to repent of idols, place your full trust in the true Lord, and symbol it's kind of like what we do. We call you to repent and place your faith in Christ, and you symbolize that with baptism. Here, symbolize it by putting on new clothes. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. So they, they hand over all the idols and all the pagan stuff. They bury it under a tree. But now, what about the surrounding nations? Or what about uh, the Canaanites? Will they kill Jacob and his family? And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. God protected them. There were idols in the camp. And Jacob calls them to put away their foreign gods. Now, we might be tempted to say, how stupid can people be to make a little idol and to bow down to it? I mean, that is just silly. I'm I'm glad we've advanced and that there are no more idols today. Or are there? I'm going to talk about idols. I'm going to make three points about idols. One is that idols are internal. They're not just little statues out here, but they're internal conditions of the heart. So idols are internal. Second thing about idols, idols are enslaving. And thirdly, idols are insulting to God. And I think by the time we're done, we'll have a little bit bigger picture of what idolatry is. So let's take a look. First of all, idolatry is internal. Now you say, wait a minute, I thought idolatry was making a little statue and bowing down in front of the statue. Well, that is the ridiculous condition to which idolatry can lead, but long before idolatry expresses itself Physically, in bowing down before a little statue, it begins in the heart. Now, let me show you this from the New Testament. In Colossians, Paul says, 
Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Paul doesn't equate idolatry with simply bowing down to a little metal statue. He says covetousness, a condition of the heart, is idolatry. Now, what is covetousness? Covetousness is saying, I can only be satisfied if I have X, whatever X is. Could be money, could be a car, could be your picks for your Super Bowl team, could be somebody else's wife, could be a certain TV show, right? uh, uh, Covetousness says, I can't be happy unless I have X. In other words, what you're saying in your heart is, God is not enough. And what God has given me is not enough. Remember last week we talked about uh, being content with your lot in life? Being discontent and saying, the grass is greener elsewhere. I must have that grass. That's idolatry. It's saying I can't be happy with what I have. There's this um, preacher theologian named John Piper who says this, it, idolatry, starts in the heart. Craving, wanting, enjoying, being satisfied by anything that you treasure more than God. A disordered love or desire, loving more than God, what ought to be loved less than God and only for the sake of God. Loving too much, What ought to be loved less? Okay, that's idolatry. What's an idol? Well, it's the thing. It is the thing loved or the person loved more than God, wanted more than God, desired more than God, treasured more than God, enjoyed more than God. It could be a girlfriend. It could be good grades. It could be the approval of other people. It could be success in business. It could be sexual stimulation. It could be a hobby or a musical group that you're following or a sport or your immaculate yard. He talks about how um, he was trying to find some some yard service online, and he talked about how the yard advertisers used idolatry to sell their yard service. The, The sales point was, be the envy of your neighborhood with your green grass. So I must have the best lawn on the block. And if that's your highest goal, even your lawn can be an idol. Now, careful, careful, careful. Notice none of Piper's examples are morally wrong in and of themselves. But here's when they become idols when they become more important than God himself. That's why I want to highlight, at least in his phrases here, the word loving more than God. Okay, what's an idol? Well, it's a thing. 
It's the thing loved or the person loved more than God, wanted more than God, desired more than God, treasured more than God, enjoyed more than God. It is not wrong to have a girlfriend or a nice lawn or a football team that you like, okay? It's when God gets moved from the giver of the gift, and now the gift becomes more important than the giver, okay? And the reason I want to be careful here is I think I want to call us all to abandon our idols, but you can go too far and fall into another thing, another heresy called asceticism. Asceticism says not only must we abandon our idols, but all the things of this world are evil. Okay? Now, the word world in Scripture is used to speak of a sinful system. But remember, when God first created the world at the end of six days, what did he say about it? It's good. And he gave the earth and blessings and food and marriage to Adam and Eve, and it was good. So, Here's what asceticism does. Asceticism says, spirit good, material things, everything bad. So I will deny myself everything. I'm just going to sit in my gray room, and now I'll be really spiritual. It doesn't work. Okay? Um, so, so be careful that you don't fall from idolatry, you know, abandon your idols, to... Shaking your fist at God, the giver of good gifts. Okay? Solomon had, in the book of, uh, of Ecclesiastes, he had the right balance. Now, at first, he didn't. First, he tried to find ultimate fulfillment and satisfaction apart from God. He was the richest man who ever lived, the wisest man who ever lived. He had a thousand women in his harem. Uh, he he uh, had people come from all over the world to sit at his feet because he was so wise. He had everything. And what did he say? Vanity of vanities. Everything is vanity. Nothing is satisfying. Because he was trying to find ultimate satisfaction in God's gifts apart from God. And you know what God does? God does you the favor of frustrating your pursuit of idols. So in the first part of the book, Solomon says this, there's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Now, um, some people think that this is him in frustration just saying, I can't figure out the meaning of life, so just eat, drink, and be merry and be a pagan. No, I don't believe that's what he's doing here. I believe he's saying, I can't even find satisfaction in eating and drinking and enjoying my job because he was putting those things first. So God was not even allowing him to enjoy a simple meal and his work. This also I saw is from the hand of God. It's God who frustrates your idolatry to wake you up to your idolatry. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him. Now, here's the person who puts God first. 
For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. Okay? When you, when you put God first, now you can enjoy a meal. And you can enjoy your family. And you can enjoy... You know, you, so, some of you are wondering, why is life so frustrating? I'm going to try this and I'm going to buy that. And you're running after the grass that's always greener. And the solution is you're in idolatry. You need to put God first in your heart. And then you can enjoy your sandwich. Okay? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. But notice, when you put God first, you are allowed to enjoy God's good gifts. In fact, one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible, these three verses in, in Ecclesiastes, he says, go eat your bread with joy. Okay, enjoy your sandwich. And drink your wine with a merry heart. Apply that however you want, okay? For God has already approved of what you do. Let your garments always be white. It's okay to enjoy a nice Al Cruz designed <laughs> jacket. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Now, that's not saying get gross and be oily. No. Oil back then was kind of like a, a perfume or a, a cologne. So, you know what I did this morning after I shaved? Got out the old brute. <laughs> Enjoying my, my, my brute, right? Cheapest cologne and the best smelling. Me and Joe Namath, right? Okay. And look at this. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun. Because that is your portion in life. That's your lot in life. And in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Put God first. Don't, don't put his gifts first. Put God first. But then once you have him first, enjoy his gifts. You say, I can't, because you, you don't have God first. All right? So here, in connection time, here are some questions we're going to ask. Analyze the discontentment in your life. Is it a holy discontentment? And there is such a thing as holy discontentment. I hope you're discontent with the sin in your life. I hope you're discontent with the unrighteousness in the world. So there is a holy discontentment. Or is it an unholy covetousness? You're discontent because somebody else's grass is greener and I can't be happy until I have it. Trace it back to what it is. It's idolatry. Okay? So now, that the first thing that we just need to understand is when you hear, put away your idols, don't say to yourself, oh, well, I don't bow down to little statues. This doesn't apply to me. No, 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 no. Idolatry is internal. All right? Second point. Idolatry is enslaving. Okay? Remember when Jacob fled from Laban, his father-in-law, and Laban tracks him down in the desert. And he comes up to him. What does he say? He says, Laban to Jacob, it is in my power to do you harm, but the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, be careful not to say anything 
to Jacob, either good or bad. So God himself appears and says, don't say anything to Jacob. But he just has to say something. And what does he say? Don't take my daughters away. Don't take my my grandchildren away. No. What does he say? What's on his heart? And now you've gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? His biggest concern are these little idols that Rachel stole. And remember, he does the search through all the the tents and he can't find them. And Rachel's sitting on on, uh, the saddlebags. He says, oh, Dad, I can't get up. The way of woman has come upon me. How'd that go explaining that to your kids, what that was? Okay. Um, But he's obsessed. He's enslaved to idols. Why are idols, why is idolatry enslaving? Well, we were made by God to find satisfaction only in God, only in the true God. We will never be satisfied by anything less. But when we reject the true God and try to find ultimate satisfaction in something else, that's an idol. And Paul tells us in Romans 1 that God hands us over to the depravity of our minds to the point where we become enslaved to that which we have replaced him with. So we replace the true God, we reduce the true God to an idol. We say, no, God, I don't want you, but I, I, this, I'm going to reduce you to this so I can manage you. But God returns the favor and reduces us to ridiculousness. And it even gets to the point where people bow down to these little statues. Looking from the outside, when we read Romans 1, we're supposed to look at Romans 1 and go, that's so ridiculous. But the people caught up in idolatry, they don't see it. They think it works. They think they're controlling God. And reality, their little God is controlling them. When we reduce and replace the true God with a false God, God allows us to serve and be enslaved to that God. Let me show you this with money. Jesus actually talks about this in Matthew 6, 24. He says, no one can serve two masters. And by the way, that word serve is used of idols. Remember in the... Uh, the second commandment, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other. So now we go to the first commandment where it says God's got to be first. There can't be two people in first place or two idols in first place. It's either the true God or a false God. Now, the competition here is between the true God and money. You can't have both of them sitting on the ultimate throne. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. 
Okay. How do we serve money? I, th- I thought money served us. No. When you place your ultimate hope, your ultimate trust, your ultimate joy, your ultimate security in having money, serving it becomes your slavery. Whatever you're placing your ultimate security in, if it's not God, that thing has now become your God, your idol, and you become enslaved to it. Here's here's an illustration of a man being set free of his idolatry of money. Um, There was a tax collector named Zacchaeus. Jesus was coming into the town of Jericho, and he was a little short guy. He couldn't see. All the crowds wanted to see Jesus, so he climbed up in a tree. Now, um, tax collectors, Jewish tax collectors, basically sold out to Rome and said, we'll collect money for Rome, um, and we will embezzle and cheat and extort money from our fellow Jewish people. They were obsessed with money, right? So they were uh, money idolizers. So he climbs up in the tree, and Jesus is walking in town, and uh, he points up and says, Zacchaeus, I'm having lunch at your house today. And Zacchaeus comes down, and he says, all right. And that's always my justification. If you go out to lunch with the pastor, you pay. Uh, No. (laughs) So he goes. Jesus goes to his house, and we're not even told what they talk about. But something happens in Zacchaeus' heart. And he stands up, and he announces. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. Now, did he become a Christian by giving his money away? No. You are not saved by works. You are not saved by giving money. You are saved by faith alone in Christ alone, who died to pay for your sins. That's the gospel. Why did Jesus say salvation has come to this house? Because before their very eyes, we see a man abandoning his idols. Before, he was controlled by his idol, money. And now he turns, he lets go of it, and he embraces Jesus by faith. You can't serve. Now, it doesn't say you can't have both God and money. There are a lot of very rich people who are not serving money. There are a lot of poor people who are. It's not how much you have. It's does it have you? Does it have a hold on your heart? So here Zacchaeus says, it's no longer my God. And he turns and he places his faith in Jesus. I've, I've mentioned this show on TV before. I don't know if it's even on, um, but it's a show called Obsessed. I'm kind of obsessed with this show. Um, it's really a horrifying show. Uh, it's like a docudrama about OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. 
and they, they follow different people who have OCD, and they, try, they, they watch them work with therapists, try to get, get, release them from their OCD. Their uh, OCD is obsessive-compulsive disorder, where you're obsessively trapped in your mind to these rituals. Some people are like constantly, did I, did I turn the coffee maker off? Did, did, I turn, did I pull this? And they're afraid that the house is going to blow up, so they're always driving back home and checking things. Or, or uh, some people are obsessed to cleanliness, and they're, uh, they're, they're always washing their hands like 80 times a day because they have this obsession with, with germs. Okay, Now, um, I'm not equating OCD with idolatry. I'm illustrating OCD. I'm, or I'm illustrating idolatry with OCD. What's behind OCD? This. You wake up and you realize there's a big, uncontrollable world out there. So you create the illusion of being in control of this uncontrollable world by taking control over some little aspect of your world. Could be cleaning, could be washing your hands, could be washing the windows, could be checking your texts obsessively. And it becomes an enslaving ritual. But it does nothing. It's an illusion. It gives you the illusion that you're in control of the uncontrollable world, but it doesn't do any, and you've become a, 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 an enslaved person to these rituals. When we place our ultimate faith in money or people's approvals or our weight or getting all A's, when that becomes our ultimate hope, we become enslaved to these things. Now, that's kind of the psychological explanation of, of slavery to idols. But there's also an additional spiritual explanation. And it has to do with demons. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians, What do I imply then, that food offered to idols was anything, or that an idol is anything? No. Remember, you know, can a Christian eat food in the meat market that had been previously offered to an idol? And Paul says, the long answer is this. There's nothing inherently wrong with the meat. Go ahead, eat the pork chop or the whatever. Okay? But, if my eating that food in front of another Christian who has a conscience and sensitive about that, out of love, you don't do it. Okay, so there's the whole weaker brother, stronger brother thing, which we won't get into this morning. Okay, but then Paul says, it's one thing if the meat, if the pork chops hanging in the meat market, it's another thing if you go into the temple and participate in the pagan sacrifice. Don't do that. Why? No, I. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. There's a spiritual element to this where you go, God is here and I need to get all A's is here. Or God is here or I must have the greener lawn is here. This is now your God 
there is some kind of demonic hold that goes on. So I would hope you would be sitting here saying, oh my, I didn't think idolatry was that big a deal. But I can see some things in my life that have a control over me. I need to flee idolatry. I don't want to be obsessed. I don't want to be controlled. And I don't want demonic activity in my life. Okay? But now, here's here's the third point that I want you to really get. Because it's one thing to throw away your idols and try to live simply by the power of self-control to not fall back into them. That won't work. You must replace the idols with God. Right? Zacchaeus got rid of his idol, but he turned to Jesus. Unless you fill the void with Christ, you're just going to find another idol. Now, the third point that I want you to see, oh, by the way, in connection time, we're going to ask this. What were you enslaved to before coming to Christ? It'd be interesting to hear what obsessions you may have been enslaved to. And then, what do you find yourself most tempted to be enslaved to today? What's your temptation that you need to battle? Okay. Now, third point. Idolatry is insulting. And this is, this is going to make sense as we, we unpack it. Idolatry is insulting. Second commandment, don't make for yourself an idol. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. When you have an idol, God's God's jealousy is aroused and it's insulting to him. Now, do you all remember when Oprah, she revealed that she was sitting in her 20s in a Baptist church? And the preacher was talking about the attributes of God, his omnipotence and his omnipresence. And she was enraptured with God until he said, and he is a jealous God. And right then, Oprah decided she didn't want to follow that God. I don't need to follow a God who's jealous of me. She didn't understand what this is talking about. You see, there's, there's a sinful kind of jealousy where your lawn is greener than mine and I'm jealous of you. So I spread dandelions in your lawn, right? Okay. But then there's a healthy, a good, a godly kind of jealousy. And uh, there's a website called gotquestions.org. I don't endorse everything they say, but sometimes they have some good things. And at this site, they, they answer this question, how is it right for God to be a jealous God? And they say this, perhaps a practical example will help us understand the difference, the difference between good and bad jealousy. Okay? If a husband sees another man flirting with his wife, he is right to be jealous. For only he has the right to flirt with his wife. This type of jealousy is not sinful, rather it is entirely appropriate. Being jealous for something that God declares to be long to you is good and appropriate. Jealousy is a sin uh, when it is a desire for something that does not belong to you. 
Worship, praise, honor, and adoration belong to God alone, for only he is trustworthy, or only he is truly worthy of it. Therefore, God is rightly jealous when we worship, praise, honor, or, uh, or adoration is given to idols. Okay? There's a godly kind of jealousy. Uh, wives, I hope your husband is jealous for you. And when somebody flirts with you, he gets jealous and comes to your defense. Okay? That's what God is doing. He is rightly guarding his glory. By the way, for God not to defend his glory would be idolatry. By definition, the most glorious being in the universe deserves worship and praise. For God to say... Yeah, by the way, I, I, I listen to the different internet stations, and I'm an old 70s guy, and I have this, uh, this uh, channel. Remember Bread? And there's this, this song. It's really nice, but it's really stupid. It's called, um, It Don't Matter to Me If You Take Up With Somebody Who's Better Than Me. What? Your happiness is all I want. So you can run around with other guys. I hope you find the right guy. But I'll always be standing here waiting. No, woman, you're mine, all right? And you're not going to be flirting around with other guys. And it does matter to me. And that's what God is saying here. Okay? But, but it's a really pretty song. Now, Here's what I really want you to understand. God's jealousy against idols is not only a zeal for his glory, but it's a zeal for our good, too. You got to get that. That his jealousy, when you run off and worship an idol, yes, that he's jealous because you're giving glory and honor and worship to something that is not worthy and his honor is at stake. But your good is at stake also. And God gives a great picture of what that's all about. In Jeremiah 2.13, he says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, and look how he describes himself, the fountain of living waters. It's clean, it's fresh, it's cool, it's life. They've, they've said no to that, to the fountain of living, refreshing water, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. What we really want, forget that fresh, clean, cool water. We want an empty, dry, broken tank. You see, idolatry not only is dishonoring to the fountain of water, it's suicidal for those who think they can be fulfilled in this broken cistern. Okay? Idolatry is insulting to God, but it's also settling for far less than what you should have. Piper says this, and if we find God to be so boring, 
or so negligible that we must put other things in his place that really satisfy us more than he does, then we not only offend him, but we also destroy ourselves. And those two things make God angry. He doesn't want to be offended, and he doesn't want us to destroy ourselves. Okay? Now, those of you, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make some of you mad now. Those of you who say no to the true God because you might have to give up what is, what are, your pornography, your cigarettes, your alcohol, your cheating in business, that's where it's really at. You're far too easily pleased. I'm not calling you to be a goody two-shoes. I'm calling you to find real pleasure and not settle for trifles. C.S. Lewis said this, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. It's not that your desires for sin are too strong. It's that your desire for real pleasure is too weak. Why settle for garbage when you can have true joy? We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Sinner who has rejected Christ, you are weak. You are far too easily pleased and you have said no to the the fountain of life and you're settling for broken, moldy cisterns that can never satisfy. So here's a question I want to ask all of you. We'll do this in connection time. What does it mean for you to stop being far too easily pleased and press on to true joy? Jacob called his people to abandon their idols and he buried them under a tree. I'm calling us to abandon our idols and we bury them at the foot of the cross because that's where we find forgiveness, even for idolatry. What do you mean by the cross? God's insulted. By our idolatry. Yet he loves you enough to frustrate your pursuit of those idols. And he's calling you to himself. But we come dirty, we come sinful, so we need to be cleansed. You say, what do I need to do to be cleansed? Do I need to say so many our fathers and Uh, Give money and there's nothing you can do. That's why Jesus came and was nailed to a cross. He paid for your sin, including your insulting idolatry. Drop the idols and embrace the cross, and you're forgiven.
and you get the fountain of living water. Let's pray.